did you never cry? I didn't cry when I was in prison, I couldn't. Even when I felt like I was crying, my eyes were dry. Hi, is that a new top? It's actually fab, that colour is you. Love it. I am Angela Scanlon and you are listening to Thanks A Million, the podcast that talks about thanks with the good, the great and the grateful. How's your day been? Mine has been pretty full on. I am relatively new to the school run. I don't know whether you know or have experienced the school run. Maybe you're in walking distance. I'm not. So I have been stuck sluggishly in traffic all morning, but it's fine. I'm channeling positive energy. It, It took a lot of mustering. Also, my daughters are snotty, not in the, you know, societal way, but like literally bubbling with snot. Sorry, that's too much information, isn't it? Shall we go on? There are just about a million things that I have been grateful for lately. Today, it just dawned on me that I am so, so thankful. I mean, I look forward so much to a little evening date with a magnifying mirror. I don't own one because I feel it would lead to my demise. But when I get to a hotel that has a magnifying mirror and some good sweet light, my nose gets it. Seriously, in my current house, I feel like my pores are really tiny. And then I get up to a magnifying mirror and boom, I can see all the good stuff. And I don't know why, but it's just deeply, deeply satisfying. I know this feels really graphic and disgusting and it's not full on pimple popper, but there's definitely an air of that to it. So to whatever genius pervert invented the magnifying mirror, merci beaucoup. I am sorry. I am. I don't know what came over me the day that I recorded that moment of clarity. My nose gets it. That sounds perverse. Never mind the chap. I presume it was a chap who invented the magnifying mirror. Anyway, my point is it can be unlikely things. We can find thanks in unlikely places is what I'm saying. So look around. Moving on. Now, I want to talk a little bit about you. What you, the listeners, are thankful for this week. B says, I'm grateful for the courtyard garden of my favourite cafe. It's so special to have such a peaceful, quiet and green space in the middle of the busyness of the city. See, we've got classy listeners as well. It's not just about spots and snots, okay? Alex writes in, I'm grateful for the cats of my neighbourhood. I love taking a moment or two while I'm rushing about to give each cat I come across a bit of a fuss. Is that code word for something, Alex? I love giving the cat a bit of a fuss. I have to say, I am what I call a white witch. And so I see cats everywhere. They come, they follow me. And apparently they are an omen from another realm. So Alex, you know, watch your back. Right, let's get to it and meet our guest for this episode. In 1990, Raphael Rowe, along with two other black men, was wrongfully convicted as part of the M25-3 and was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. After 12 years of maintaining his innocence and fighting to have his case reviewed, Raphael and his co-defendants' verdicts were overturned and finally ruled a miscarriage of justice. 
During his time in prison, Raphael studied journalism as well as criminal behaviour and law. He went on to work as a reporter for the BBC, where he was dedicated to exposing injustice and human rights abuse in prison systems all over the world. We get right into that. In the years since, Raphael has created the Raphael Rowe Foundation, which he's extremely passionate about. The mission is to work with prison administrators and inspire them to abolish dehumanising, degrading and dangerous practices. He is a seriously impressive and lovely man with an absolutely astonishing life story. Ladies, gents, non-binary folk, buckle up. This is Raphael Rowe. Hi, Angela. <laughs> How you doing? I'm very well. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Nice glasses. Thank you. Yeah, yeah they're, they're um, quite Harry Potter. They are Harry Potter. That's what people say. So I, I tend to change them every year, you know, just the shape slightly, yeah. just to give myself a new appearance, you know, it yeah. makes you feel like you're doing something different. You're br- it's like a new hairstyle. It's like a new hairstyle, and unfortunately, yeah. I cut my dreadlocks off, which I had for like 18, 19 years Stop. until I left the BBC and had to take on this new persona. And I thought, you know, that Samson and Goliath moment where you kind of chop off your hair and become someone different. So sorry. So you had them for that length of time, and did, did it feel like you were releasing? It, it did actually, because it was a turning point in my career, a turning point in age. It was a turning point for many different things, and I think cutting off my hair was a a signal to myself more than anyone that I needed to change and feel different about what I was just about to do whereas my dreadlocks you know cut my kind of appearance for the BBC for 16 17 years it was my difference if you like not only the color of my skin my actual where I come from etc but my dreadlocks carved me out as a journalist at the BBC. So cutting them off did really change who I was. And so what, and then what, so you were like, okay, we're, we mean business now. I've left the beef. I'm on Netflix. We're going big. <laughs> I, I kind of grew up. I think that's what it was. I okay. think I kind of held on to them for as long as I could thinking I was, but then they get thinner. They get, my dreads yeah, were yeah. really long at one point, almost down to my backside. And then I trimmed yeah. them to my shoulders just so that I could do the work that I did. And then eventually it was a real tough thing it took me about a year to make the final decision to sit in the barber's chair and when I did the barber sort of said me do you really want me to cut these off and I'm yes do it yeah and I never looked back never looked back the only thing that came out of it my daughter was about five years old at the time and I went to her school to pick her up the day I cut my dreadlocks off and she cried because she didn't recognize me I mean, I have that a little bit with my husband and he does not have dreadlocks. But when he gets, he gets a bit fluffy around the ears, not in his actual ears, but like, you know, gets a bit curly. And then when he get, when he does like a tight shave, I mean, I don't have the terminology. But yeah, my daughter is the same. She's like, oh, it's it can be quite upsetting, I think. Hair is very evocative in so many ways. It's your personality. And I think she was yeah. shocked at this new man, you know, with this very short hair trying to do something different. There's not much yeah. you can do with my hair it's tight it's curly um but yeah it was quite a a revelation for her and me well you look fabulous with or without them thank you um so where are you today i'm at home in southeast london um working from home have been for the last week um dropped my son off at manchester at the weekend because he's just starting his 
journey through university and growing up and becoming a young man da -da -da -da. so that was quite probably Big. for lots of parents dropping off their kids whether it's at the beginning of this month to school for the first time or university for the last time you yeah, know it's, yeah, yeah, it's been yeah. quite an emotional week and it has been for I suppose many people but I'm at home mm -hmm. in South East London at the moment okay lovely well before we kick off we're going to play a little game All right, okay. and I would love, I don't know if you're in your office or, you know, whether you're a minimalist or what kind of place you keep, but I would love for you to have a little mooch around the room mm. and find something that you are grateful for in this moment. So, all right. I've got something. Give Go, me a second. run like the wind. Imagine the wind flowing through your dreadlocks. Here we go. This is what I'm grateful for because there was a point in my life where I never thought I would ever be able to have something like this. Oh. This is the hand and footprint of my five and a half month old little boy who's now 18 and gone off to university. Oh, so this wow. is something my pride enjoys. So I'm grateful for the fact that I was able to have children, you know, yeah. because there was one point in my life where I thought that would never be possible. Yeah. Um, we should say, because this is a podcast, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at that, but it is one of those classic little framed... Uh, I guess it's clay, isn't it? Where they put the little hand and the little foot and then five and a half months old and his name. Yeah, it's in a, it's in a frame. I had it done, I think it was in John Lewis, actually, yeah. where you take your kids in the kiddie part and they press their hands and feet. How they managed to get it so perfect, I don't know, because a five and a, month, five and a half month year old would have moved and They're wriggled wriggly. and wriggled, but somehow they managed to get his hand and foot. Maybe he was excited by it and liked the idea of pushing his yeah. toes. And do, do you remember sticking his little squidgy toes in that clay? I do, actually. I, I, I do. And it, it's, they're just so small. I did. That was a professionally done, you know, because it's your first and you're doting and everything's done in a way. I had a daughter sort of four years, five years after, and I kind of got the putty myself and did it myself. And it's DIY. nowhere as good. You know, I think it's cracked. But I do remember doing it, actually. I remember a lot of the relationship that I had with my son when he was young and growing up because I spent so much time with him. You know, I was really and still am a very doting team dad I'm very private you know I don't this is kind of one of the first I've not for many many years talked about my children openly yeah. on platforms where people become aware of it because I've been mm -hmm. very protective of who of they are and um, my, my existence with them but yeah I remember many many things and it's just something that will never ever change so mm -hmm. I like to remind him every so often that he was little once and yeah. when he was little I was the one changing his nappies and doing all the yeah. stuff that he wouldn't dare let me do today um, and big feet now I bet <laughs> big feet yeah much bigger than me and that's one thing he's very proud of actually that he's grown taller than me that was oh, his ambition in life and he achieved that quite easily because I'm not very tall so. okay he's a big lad I do think that's the thing I mean I have two girls and my eldest started school this year and ah, again that's like a you know different stage but I a know. similar kind of oh wow that's that's happening but I think for a parent when your kid is starts to hit the same height as you you're like oh yeah yeah, that's it now. Yeah, it takes yeah. time, but it gets there. Yeah. So, Raphael, the advice that you are most thankful for? I think it was when I first, um, you know, as a young man, I didn't get very much advice because there weren't that many mentors around me. My father wasn't the greatest role model. Um, I think it was when I started 
No, I'm going to go back to when I was in prison, actually, when mm -hmm. I was fighting my wrongful conviction and um, I was very volatile. I was a very angry, bitter, young, volatile prisoner, you know, from I was in prison from the age of 20. So it was about when I was 27 years old and for the past seven mm -hmm. years of being in maximum security prisons here in the United Kingdom, I reacted to everything. I wouldn't conform and mm -hmm. spent a lot of time during those years in isolation, in segregation, being punished for being aversive, etc. Mm -hmm. And it was doing my campaign to have my convictions overturned no good, you know, because you couldn't fight from the confines of a very isolated cell. Yeah. But there were other men in prison at the time who were also subjected to wrongful convictions. And there's one guy in particular I remember, his name was Richard McEnany, and he was one of the Birmingham Six. Oh, and their man. convictions, people may remember, was overturned. Yeah. They were involved in the wrongful conviction of an IRA terrorist activity. And Richard McEnany and Billy Powell, um, who were two guys in one of the prisons that I was in who were wrongly convicted of the Birmingham Six case, they said to me that um, I would never be able to have my conviction overturned if I continued fighting the system, i.e. the prison system, because they were not responsible for my wrongful conviction. I think that was okay, the most right. important bit of advice that I got at that time, where they were saying to me, you need to get your family, you need to get your friends and campaigners to work for you on the outside. Yeah. And that was a big, big turning point for me, you know, mm -hmm. getting that bit of advice that I needed to stop fighting the system. I didn't conform or start to behave in any sense, yeah. but I started to realise that I had to be mature about it and just retaliating wasn't the way to change my life so that was a key piece of advice for me mm -hmm. when I was in prison for sure yeah but uh, yeah and again I think that that idea that in order for that wrongful conviction to be overturned you need that outside support there are probably a lot of people in that position who who wouldn't have that you know the voice or the support on the outside who may make make the noise that leads to to a release or a, a retrial Especially for those who don't have the sort of media behind their yeah. case. I mean, at the time that I was wrongfully convicted, there was a lot of media attention. You know, the national newspapers and broadcasters were talking about the case. And so there was mm -hmm. a lot of attention already. Yeah. So it was about turning that attention to the positive rather than the negative of the wrongful conviction. And I suspect there are lots, and I know there are lots of people in prison who don't have that. They didn't have the sort of fanfare mm -hmm. of media. But you're right. You know, I had a sister. I've got three sisters. And one of my sisters, my youngest sister, she was the biggest advocate, you know, she would stand yeah. in the rain at platforms and shout for her brother, you know, in his wrongful conviction. And so did my parents. And it just garnered the sort of public support that we needed. And whenever the media were interested in telling a story, my sister would pop up and tell them the story in the yeah. most forceful way she could. But that, you know, as positive as that was, it also took its toll. You know, she was trying to bring up a family and continue her life. And it, it really did disrupt yeah, her life as well. So I'm in highly grateful for everything she and everybody else that got involved in my campaign during that time you know the, the person who wrote me a letter from a million miles away just to say that they support 
my campaign, it, it, it was yeah. heartening and I'm grateful for that and still am today. Some of those people I still keep in touch with remotely in some yeah. way, shape or form. Or they like to remind me that 20 years ago they were sending me letters and I'm talking about the physical letters that come through the post under your cell door yeah. that don't exist anymore. Emails are probably something they use in prisons today. But yeah. in those days, opening that envelope, taking out that letter with a couple of words of encouragement mm-hmm. was so heartening and I'm truly grateful for that yeah and and the connection of that even when you're you know when you're far away from people and you know whether that's in solitary confinement or you're kind of you know feel so separate from from the world to have that sense of connection with people imagine is is kind of the only thing that keeps you going it's one of the things you know it's a bit of the outside coming to the inside you know because you know whoever it is that was writing that letter in their bedroom their front room and then you know walk down the street put it in a post box Mm. and then the delivery man comes etc etc and then lo and behold it's being slipped under my door and every sort of every day at a certain time the prison officers would slip these letters under prisoners doors and you'd wait for yours and if they walked past your door and you didn't get one it could be quite disheartening you know Mm. when you expected it I mean in the beginning there was none of that but as the years went by and the media paid more attention to my wrongful conviction people became aware those letters become more frequent and there were lots of them sometimes it would take me more than a day to read them but yeah Yeah, it, it did bring the outside into the inside and that was very heartening and relieving actually for sure and also the transition into now a a public figure of a of a different kind you're used to fan mail I am actually it comes (laughs) in a different shape now it comes through social media doesn't it you know I get this barrage of messages from people almost saying the same thing you're either Mm. an inspiration to them or they love the work that you do or they appreciate that you stay true to who you really are which is something that I've tried to do throughout my my career as a journalist Mm. so yeah you still get those messages but it comes in that sort of social media whether it's on Instagram or Twitter or or some other um, guys but it's social media that's doing the thing now for sure yeah Mm -hmm. I know that you wrote in in your book Notorious about the idea people kind of thought Covid and lockdown was was similar to being locked down in prison and you know that's not the case obviously No, and I don't want to take away from the fact that it was a testing time for people who are not going or have never been through an experience of not being able to make decisions for themselves Mm -hmm. or choices or be able to to be as free as they once were being restricted to their home especially people who are living alone or people who needed to get out or had small children in tight flats or something and it was just bouncing off of the walls but it is about as far as it it goes in terms of a comparison but prison is very different you don't have a handle on the inside of a cell door you wait for somebody during my time to open that door for you to use the toilet, you know, to do mm-hmm. a number two. You couldn't go and that shit will. on the can if you weren't out of your cell. And when you were desperate, it was in a newspaper and out the window if the bars would allow you to squeeze it through. I mean, visualise that. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, so that's what I mean when I say you can't compare the lockdown period with prison because so much is taken away from you. And mm-hmm. the most important thing is your freedom, your liberty, your ability to go for a walk around the park and I experienced the lockdown and it was lovely for me because I could get out and walk around the park but I knew what it was really like not to be able to walk um, or see beyond the sky you know brick wall 
concrete mm. wall at the end of the exercise yard restricting your vision there was none of that during yeah. lockdown so that's what I mean by comparison just the hardness of prison as opposed yeah. to the restrictions during the lockdown period yeah and I mean a lot of your work now focuses on trying to uh, trying to change that I guess the kind of dehumanizing because I think COVID yes we our freedom was taken away but we were still you know, treated as humans. And I think in prison and certainly a lot of the more extreme prisons that you've gone to, there's a sense that you go in, not only is your freedom taken away, but actually your dignity and your sense of humanity. That's what it can be like in many of the places I've been around the globe in in the Netflix series, you know, and it's... It's for me. It's about how do you, you know? I I recognise, as I suppose everybody does, that when people make mistakes or they commit crimes or do something as horrendous as a, a murder, a rape, yeah. or something as as serious as that, that prison may be and should be the only place that they're sent to. But I think once they're in prison, how you treat them, how you behave towards prisoners is key for preventing the next victim that's what it's about for me it's about protecting victims they've done what they've done they deserve to be punished and they're in prison but it doesn't mean that you have to dehumanize them and the resources should be invested especially for the majority of prisoners who are in and out or they go in for the first time they're going to come out they're going to become yours and my neighbor and it's about trying to give them opportunities because we all make mistakes you know and we accept that we make mistakes some mistakes are far serious than others some out of desperation you know you can't judge somebody on the crime or the mistake that they've made and so yeah a lot of my work especially since I've been doing the Netflix series which has propelled me into setting up a foundation is about trying to say hold on what's the main purpose of prison and Mm -hmm. one of the main purposes of prison is to punish but once you've sent somebody to prison for punishment you've got to and I'm not saying you've got to rehabilitate them but you've got to give them an opportunity to prevent them from committing further crimes when they come out of prison that's the key for me because that's what we all want otherwise it's a cycle right and is is that then about about seeing and this may be a reach for a lot of people depending on the crime but it's a it's about somebody seeing the good in that person because there's good in all of us there's bad in all of us is it about trying to you know connecting with somebody and somebody seeing that there might be hope for you to to be a different person or to be a better version of of yourself and I think that's where I come in because I meet these individuals as adults but I think we were all born and our mothers or our fathers you know whatever your relationship with them we were all born not criminals not committing crimes so it's your social circumstances that drives the person that you become it might be a traumatic experience that drives you to do something cruel or violent or to commit crime so I think there is something evidenced in the fact that all of these people that are in prison or end up in prison there is a story behind that individual Mm -hmm. and once you understand that story without judgment I mean I don't hesitate for some reason when I go into prisons maybe because of my own experience in prison when I meet people who have committed sexual offences I find them very difficult to manage because I find that is a deliberate crime, you know, whereas I meet someone who's committed murder in the same sense, but I feel slightly different. Mm. But you're right, it's, you know, it's about 
if you give that person an opportunity and you understand what their backdrop is, mm-hmm. then it explains why they did what they did. And then if you can address that problem, and I'm, I'm not a you know leading liberal who sort of says, oh, we've got to feel sorry for everyone. I'm not like that at all. But yeah. I do believe in humanity. I've been in prison. I know that when I was in prison, I was judged. I was called a murderer. I was called a monster. I was deemed very di- dangerous, etc. But that wasn't who I was. Yeah. And so when I go in and I meet these people, I don't see them as that unless they show signs of being that person today and some people are unreachable Angela you know there are some people that have just set their stone and that's who they Mm. want to be and so be it yeah okay is there a thank fuck for that I feel like I might know this, but maybe not. <laughs> you know, I've done a lot of dangerous things in my life. And, and whereas I would like to say, thank fuck, my convictions were overturned and <laughs> yeah. I was given, you know, my life back or won my life back. There have been moments where as an undercover journalist, I've been sat in a room with criminals who have firearms and slowly but surely they're starting to recognize me don't I know you I'm sure I know you and I'm like no mate you don't know I've grown a beard I'm wearing a baseball cap and I'm sort of trying to expose something and and there are moments where I think fuck they didn't recognize who I was you know now working for the BBC but I wasn't as high profile then so I could get away from it but I suppose you know it, it would be remiss of me not to say that my thank fuck for that moment was when the judges at the Court of Appeal quashed my conviction. I was able to fall into the arms of my family and cry and think, thank fuck, that's over. But for me, that that is the key moment. But there have been lots of little key moments like that since coming out of prison, for sure. Do you have a felt sense of that, a a memory of the... Like the relief or was it shock or was it devastation at what was lost or elation at what was, you know, to, to come? I think for me it was... Conviction quashed. Judges have said I can go home. I'm taken back down into the cells at the Court of Appeal in London and they're sort of opening doors and the screws, the prison officers are not treating me like a convicted murderer anymore because I'm about to be released. And I think the moment was when they opened the the last door, if you like, that I couldn't open for myself and Mm. I was able to walk out and I'm now walking out of the court. And um, as I say, I was angry and bitter and twisted and volatile in all those years that I was in prison. I think at the moment I fell into the arms of my sister and my mother and my relatives and I was able to cry for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that bitterness and that anger and all of that almost kind of evaporated. I made a conscious effort, maybe not right there and then, but it did feel like everything had lifted from me. I was free. There was no longer this chain around my neck and my ankles. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment for me. That's what I remember most, that that I just become light. And I knew that I could get on and live my life. I didn't know what that meant. I I Mm. had no destiny. I didn't know I was going to then go on and become a successful journalist, for sure. I stood on the court of appeal steps and waved my fist and said they'd stolen 12 years of my life, all of my 20s, the best Mm. years of some people's lives. So there were that moment, and that for me was probably the most important moment of my life, for sure, and others. And does that mean, when you say you, you had that sense of release and of crying with your family and being held, did you ever have a moment of weakness or were you unable to do that from a survival kind of safety point of view in prison? Were you literally 12 years unemotional almost, like aside from anger or those, you know, aggressive masculine emotions? Were you, did you never cry? 
I didn't cry when I was in prison. I couldn't. Even when I felt like I was crying, my eyes were dry. You know, that's the honest answer. But of course, there were moments where I would lay on my cell bed and I had a bit of bad news. I'd been knocked back on, you know, being told that I couldn't get to the court of appeal or the decision had been delayed or there were there were plenty of moments like that. There were also plenty of moments where you know, I expected something to happen overnight and overnight in prison can mean months, if in some cases years. And so there were plenty of times where I laid on my cell bed where I just couldn't get up out of bed. I was just so weak mentally and physically and I tried to keep myself physically fit. That's all I did in prison is exercise and that helped my mind. But there were times where not even that would rescue me and so it came to the point where I needed some kind of psychiatric or medication to just help me get out of bed sometimes in order to cope. But, you know, I quickly reversed that as soon as I felt strong again. And that might only take a week or so. I'd stop any kind of antidepressant kind of medication or anything that would help me. But there were plenty of moments where I was I was weak, not from a physical point of view, because I think from the early years, I kind of carved my cloth if you like I kind of shaped myself that there was don't fuck with Raph Raph will fight back he will challenge you but I wasn't seen as a guilty man by other prisoners so I was treated differently and because I wasn't a guilty man I behaved differently in prison everybody knew that I wouldn't work in the prison because that's not who I was and I respected the fact that people had to do their prison sentence their way I just did mine very differently very very differently Is there a thank God no one knows? I suppose there are things that I did in prison um, to survive, violent things Mm -hmm. that I could never tell people about. I could now, in all honesty, because I can't get in trouble because I'm no longer in prison. Nothing so bad that I would be convicted of anything, but in order to protect myself or in order to to continue to, to fight my wrongful conviction, there are stances that I had to take when I was in prison um, that I never got caught for, you you know, or things that I witnessed in particular that others did, that I'm glad that I was not pulled in front of a governor and had to give information. Not that Mm. I ever would have done something like that because I was anti-everything and you would never get me. I'd rather spend time in isolation, which I did on many occasions, as I said. So I think for me, that was it. I never got called for some of the things I had to do in prison in order to protect myself Mm -hmm. or or to survive. And I've never shared those stories. I've shared some of it. If you read my book, Notorious, then you will know that during my younger years, I got involved in other kind of not so good things Mm -hmm. but I think prison was a place where there were very little choices when it came to those things it was either you or them and sometimes it was me and sometimes it it was them yeah and I guess that's survival and even though you know you're innocent you're still in an environment where I imagine um can be quite a frightening place to be and it's survival of the fittest I suppose it is but it's not about survival per se in in that you you know people don't have anything to lose because they do if you're not serving a life sentence where even when you're serving a life sentence although you know you're destined to spend 15 20 25 years in prison 
at that point in your life, you are hoping to be freed. Now, if you do something during that time, something violent, it could set you back five or ten years because Mm -hmm. they need to see that you have changed, especially if you're in for violence. But also people serving... um, you know, fixed sentences, they do have something to lose in all fairness because they have an end date, but that end date could be extended if they do anything in prison. So for the best part, prisoners, despite what people want to believe, they do behave. I mean, there are places, don't get me wrong, where prisoners are in the early parts of their sentence, they're bringing the streets into prison. And Mm -hmm. in some of the places that I visited around the world, you're absolutely right, they don't have anything to lose. They have a different culture, they have a different way of doing things and killing people in prison is almost the same as killing people outside of prison or harming people in prison is the same as harming people or drug dealing or whatever it is that they do on the outside Mm -hmm. is the same inside, but they have completely different cultures and rules and and, and, and a way of doing things. But um, especially in the prisons that I was in, Angela, you know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't in your local prisons. I was in maximum security prisons where the majority of prisoners were serving, you know, 20 years upwards. There was no kind of five-year, three-year sentences, whereas that would be more volatile for prisoners, where I was, everybody was doing very lengthy sentences and their head was in, I'm not going to see daylight for the next 20, 25 years. That's where their head was at. Which what, tames? Tames people? More (laughs) level-headed or...? I think there's a part of that, but also because those prisons prisoners had already served 10 or 15 years so they've got through the volatile end they're already 10 years 15 years into their sentence they've calmed down they know what their path is what their trajectory is and so they calm down and you're right it has tamed people to the point where they don't need to be the person they once were because they've grown up they're an older man they're not the same person they've lost the connection with the outside world and the behaviors that they develop you know you don't go into prison a violent young man who stabs someone at 16 17 years old and then when you're 27 you're still that young 20 17 year old you know you've changed yeah. you've been wised up in the same way that I talked at the beginning you meet mm-hmm. an older wiser guy who says to you you can't do what you're doing or you won't be able to get out of here yeah. that's where you learn lessons and yeah. um, did you make friends no I didn't I made acquaintances there were people who I'd sit down and have a coffee or a cup of tea with, play football with, exercise with, associate with, but I didn't leave prison and um, connect with anybody. And I met guys and spent three or four years with them. It came very um, emotionally entangled in their lives because I knew everything about them as you do, you know, when you're on the road as a journalist and you spend three or four or five weeks with your, your team, you get to know them almost instantly. Um, then you start to dislike each other quite instantly. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, you know, it's an intense... Bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. an intensity, and the same mm-hmm. with prison. But in prison, you have to be very careful because one look could, you know, spiral into something unsavoury. You know, you're walking down the landing or the stairs and you don't acknowledge a prisoner by just nodding or, mm-hmm. you know, sort of acknowledging them. And they think, oh, they start to get very paranoid. Prison is a very paranoid place. Yeah, okay. But I didn't make any friends. And that's probably because, you know, 99% of the prisoners that I was in prison with were guilty. And as I mm-hmm. say, they were doing a very different prison sentence to me. They were conforming. Yeah. They were behaving in a way where they were looking at trying to jump through the hoops for their freedom. And I wasn't doing that in the slightest. Yeah. So. I saw myself as somebody who wasn't like them or behaved like them. And that's not me dissing them. It's just me saying, I'm not going to accept that I'm in this environment with you and I'm not going to become your friend 
because it means I'm behaving like you and that was a real struggle for me yeah it's it maybe blurs the lines if you're fighting for a wrongful conviction to be overturned and then you're you know in the system the same as everybody else who have who are guilty yeah it, it, it's quite confusing I imagine well it would that's how it would be perceived I suppose by prison officers you know he's in okay. with that crowd or whatever but also for me it was a trust thing you, mm. you know I'm wrongly convicted in prison and every prisoner I perceived as somebody who if I got friendly with them they would go down to the office and tell the prison officers that I confessed to them or did something oh, okay. that could jeopardize wow my campaign and I was always fearful of that because it's common knowledge that that's what happens in prisoners prisoners who are looking for favours you don't know yeah. who to trust and even you know the biggest gangster you think or, or whoever it is and I did meet some of the you know like very good friends I say acquaintance with, with with Reggie Cray who I spent many years banged up alongside as I did other Charles Bronson some high profile prisoners but I didn't become yeah. friends with them I knew them I had conversations with them but I didn't trust anybody in prison for fear that they could jeopardise my campaign by telling lies. And I was yeah. in prison for lies. So that was another big barrier to me getting And close. how did you know how to do that? Because I think as a young kid going in there with these, you know, more established guys, that it could be quite easy to kind of you know, seek comfort in an odd way from from these people who are, are more settled and more powerful, I suppose. How did you know I absolutely need to keep my distance and feel confident it enough? It wasn't so much that I knew I had to keep my distance, but when I, I spent the first 18 months of my imprisonment on remand in a prison within a prison, so I was in Brixton Prison, and in yeah. Brixton Prison there was another prison built inside the prison's prison okay. where it kept... 20 of the most dangerous prisoners and I was held in one of those 20 cells so I was isolated for the first 18 months 23 hours a day and it was during that period that I met some of the most notorious prisoners this country has but also international Colombian drug cartel type prisoners um, and it was just the way that they carried themselves and they behaved because these were experienced criminals that I kind of took on a little bit of that persona if you like mm. and by that I meant mean I kept myself to myself okay. and I continued that but then I also read the depositions the statements where people were telling lies about me that mm. led to my wrongful conviction so I learned quite quickly to not have conversations or be found in a, a, a situation with somewhere where they could make things up so I just it, it kind of just gradually developed yeah. that I would always be in a position, I try not to have one-on-one -on -one conversations. I would never invite somebody into my cell. I mean, don't get me wrong, I did do things like that, but it mm. would be a rarity. And I yeah. just did my prison sentence very different. I was very militaristic. You know, I was mm. on a mission to fight my conviction from beginning mm. to end. Did it take time when you came out to, to trust people again? Still do you does. trust people? Yeah, I think it still does. It's not as bad. I mean, we're 20 years on and, you, you yeah. know, I've developed a relationship and I, I, it's, it's not anywhere like it was when I was in prison. But because of the nature of the work that I've done, it, mm -hmm. it kind of lingers, lingers on. Um, yeah. But you only trust yourself, don't you? And and people often let you down. People often do things that you think are disappointing and you try not to judge them for that. But, you know, you've got to make your own decisions. And sometimes that means trust can sometimes interfere if 
if you trust in someone. Don't get me wrong, I could fall backwards and there are lots of people I'm hoping would catch me and not let me fall on the floor and bang my head. So I do have trust for, yeah. for many, many people. But again, that is a skill that I had to develop when I came out of prison. And it was a hard one. You know, I didn't have any therapy when I came out of prison. I okay. become a BBC journalist quite soon after I was released. So from mm. one institution to another. And then that was my therapy, doing the work that I did for the BBC as a correspondent journalist for, for 16, 17 years and then out of that straight into Netflix so I've yeah. never really had time to develop any of the, the hangovers from my time in prison it's just the kind of self-talk it's thing, amazing it's amazing now I'm not religious I was brought up Catholic but it's not necessarily something that I practice um, but I think your faith is quite remarkable I mean I don't I imagine in isolation there has to I don't know do you connect with something bigger in order to preserve sanity I think it's yourself isn't it I think yeah, it's okay. for me it was about discovering who I am have I got the strength to keep on resisting you know I'm talking about uh, uh, you know being dragged into an isolation cell stripped naked beaten by prison guards and then left in this cold space by myself you know bruised and bloodied being punished for something that I hadn't done shouldn't be there in the first place and that just kind of manifested itself in me so I had at that point in my life and throughout many of those years I had faith in myself to survive to withstand mm. what I was experiencing and don't get me wrong I mean I know this is all quite intense and quite dark and at times challenging yeah. but there were moments of light you know where you know, prisoners would come and put a spliff under my door, you know, to help me get through the night. So, you know, there yeah. were good people who also I had faith in, you know, getting their drugs in so I could have a spliff when I needed yeah. a spliff and, and things like that. But it was really a belief in myself that I couldn't give up on myself. If I gave up on myself... Um, and I'm not a spiritual person. I practiced yoga for many mm -hmm. years when I was in prison, you know, contorting my body because I thought that was a way of releasing my mind of the tension. Mm -hmm. I had one ritual when I was in prison. So when I could, I would go into the shower and I would shower. So you could shower almost every day, at least after you'd been in the system for some time. Not in my cell. I didn't have a shower in my cell, but there was a sort of communal shower. And I'd go under that shower, hot or cold water, and I'd wash away the day. That was my ritual. I'd wash okay. away the pain that I was feeling, the thoughts that were disturbing me or challenging mm -hmm. me. And once that water hit my skin, I almost every drop washed away the pain, the suffering or, or the joys. Mm -hmm. And then the next day would be a new day. And I'd look forward to that shower because that would be my, my little ritual, if you like. That That's a lovely ritual. Shower. I love that, but also meaning in those in those simple things. Do you still do that? I, I do you know what I do to some extent. I I, I'm not as conscious. I don't have to do it every day. Mm. You know, now it might be a walk around the block. You know, pound the pavement when I'm upset about something, or rather yeah. than shout and scream or be grumpy, I go for a walk and try and in that very short twenty minute walk, I've released my mind. So I found methods, other methods. Yeah. So the shower still works. A walk around the block works. Or yeah. a look in the mirror and shout at myself sometimes works whatever yeah. works works good, good. <laughs> yeah it's important isn't it that little toolbox um okay finally is there a thanks that got away I think I've never been able to really thank all of the people that have made my life after prison successful um I have in certain ways but I think as I kind of embarked on my career 
first at the BBC and at Netflix, you never really stop to thank the people that made that possible. You know, um, I thank myself first and foremost for not allowing my experience to colour the person that I've become. Mm -hmm. But I've never really been able to to thank the people that have I've worked with over the years. You know, you kind of say thanks, goodbye at the airport yeah. when you're coming back from locations. But I mean, a real genuine thanks that, you know, you've made who I've become successful without even really realising it because mm -hmm. you know that I went to prison, you know I was wrongly convicted, you know a little bit about my story, but you don't really realise how much your input in my life, whether it's the sound man, the cameraman, the producer, etc., the editor, whoever it is. Yeah. And my parents, I, I think I... You know, I've never really been able to, to thank them and my sisters for all that they've done for me because we have a challenging relationship at times mm -hmm. and sometimes people want more gratitude than they deserve or you can't continuously say thank you to people or show gratitude. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's because I've never really been able to express the gratitude and the thanks that 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 maybe they think they need to hear in a particular way so if mm -hmm. anything got away from me that's what it was is there anything you change i know again i'm referencing your book the the idea that everything happens for a reason and that you're living a life now that's as a result of you know 12 years um in prison for something you didn't do if you if you could control what had happened would you would you change things I would change the the morning that the police kicked my front door in, pointed guns at me and arrested me, and then I had 12 years of my life taken away, the whole of my 20s. I would change that at the drop of a, a, a hat with, without question, mm. for sure. You know, I would not wish what I went through on, on anybody. So I would, I would change that, but I also recognise that I would not be the person I am today had I not gone through that experience, mm. had I not built up the resilience and the meticulous skills as a researcher on my own case to use yeah. that as a journalist when I came out of prison. But today, uh, the, the one thing I would would change is sometimes that misery that, that sits in me, you know, the misery mm. that sort of developed my as part of my personality when I was in prison and that sometimes manifests itself in my life today, yesterday, mm -hmm. a week ago, a month ago. And I hate that part of me. I hate that part of me that can become miserable, that upsets other people, mm -hmm. you know, creates conflict between me and my children or wife. And I hate that part of me. And I know it's not me. I know it comes mm -hmm. from that prison space where... I was miserable for 12 years and you, you know, many of the things I've been able to throw away, but that part of me, I don't know why I just can't release myself of it as much as I try. Well, I have to say it's the opposite of, of miserable chatting to you. And there's such a lovely light and such hope. And I think your story's incredible. And, um, thank you. Genuinely. Thank you for, uh, for chatting to me today and and for sharing that all with me thanks for having me on it, it's been interesting and pleasure i've never been asked the questions about what i'm grateful <laughs> for you know and okay. what i'm thankful for you know you never really get the chance to say that do you, you it's know. good to, it's a look i find it difficult that access to lightness sometimes or to you know positivity and gratitude this is where the podcast has been a kind of 
relentless practice for me in order to shift my mind much like your shower it's one of my tools you know so I think we we can change it's just it's just hard isn't it sometimes it's hard but also it's part of your personality and I think the the people that are most closest to you that love you and know you they know that's a part of you and they know how to manage it and that's something to be grateful for that they know how to manage your personality the characteristics and the traits that you have that make you the loving lightful person that you are because without them you you can't just all be bouncing around and pretending that that life is hunky-dory when it when it's not you know those moments are only shared with those closest to you yeah and i and i think it's embracing that miserable old git in yourself. <laughs> it's very important. We love him too, yeah. Raph. We love yeah. him too. I think you're absolutely right. And I've learned to do that, to embrace yeah. who I am, my traits, mm-hmm. my, my good parts, my bad parts. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's what makes you stronger, I think. And it makes yeah. you more expressive. You know, you shouldn't feel bad or good about that. It's just who you are. Yeah. Really it makes is. you whole. That's the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Before I let you go, what are you working on? Netflix, new series. Yes, I do. And it's coming out the 28th of September, actually. So we have season six of this story where I go back into prison. You'd think after yeah. 12 years, <laughs> the last thing I'd want Scratching to do is go itch. back. But it's, it's important. So, yeah, I, I'm yeah. working on my Netflix series, Inside the World's Toughest Prisons. I've got my book, as you alluded to. I'm yeah. constantly pushing out the Second Chance podcast. But I think, that, you know, the legacy of everything that I'm about is the, the Raphael Rowe Foundation. It's this foundation where I'm trying to do good. You know, I've learned a lot of lessons in my life, whether it's through my work or my experience being in prison. And I think the foundation that I've set up, which is an enormous challenge, but it's so important because I think it's about, I hate to say giving back because it's not yeah. about giving back. It's about working with people and helping people who are less fortunate. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm more fortunate, but I would love someone to have been stood next to me doing the things that I'm doing for other people today, especially those in prison. You're a wonder. Thank you so much. That is your lot for today, guys. Isn't Raphael lovely? His hair, his glasses, his attitude, honestly, the resilience and the drive and the positivity i know he says he's a miserable old git but actually the flicker of light in him is something that will um yeah has made me question my own grumpy bitch wonderful wonderful man watch the netflix series follow him on instagram he is fabulous Have you left a review? I know a lot of you have, and they're all quite spicy on the all five stars, which is exactly what we want. If you haven't, get your arse to Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and pop a little review in. I would really, really appreciate it. And subscribe while you're there. It's easy, and it means that Thanks A Million will drop into your laps or into your earlugs as soon as it is ready and available. Also, if you want more of me, why not? as well as some videos of the podcast, you can find me at Angela Scanlon on Instagram. And if you want to hear your voice on the show, mm-hmm, we have kicked it up a notch this season. You can send me a voice note. I know, it's as if we're best pals. We've got a WhatsApp. Honestly, I can't tell you how thrilling this is because I live by voice notes. I am the one, I play them at 1.5, FYI. There is no apology for that. Life is too short. I leave them long. You can leave them long too. Underwater on a tram, wherever you are, whenever the inspiration, divine or otherwise, takes you, send me a little WhatsApp about what you're thankful for in any given week. 
The number is as follows. Grab a pen. Right. 073-613-67705. Okay, I'm done. That's enough. Thanks a million. See you next week. Thank fuck, my teenage daughter is gay. I'll never have to meet all those arseholes on the doorstep with the weird tattoos, strange haircuts, probably called Gareth or Ian, and everything that goes with them. 073-616. Fuck, I said it wrong. I feel like they're trolling me with the amount of threes in this number. Thanks a Million with Angela Scanlon is a recipe production. 